This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing, each of us does it our own unique way, and that's why TD Ameritrade offers everything you need to invest on your terms, from award-winning technology to personalized guidance. Visit tdameritrade.com slash ytda to get started. Yep, that's right, tdameritrade.com slash y, not who, what, or when, ytda. And thanks to LinkedIn for supporting The Motley Fool. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, their interests, even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. Very pleased that you've joined me. And I'm really actually kind of excited that you've joined me, not just for this podcast, but I hope that you'll be with me all throughout August. Because as I mentioned on last week's mailbag, this is the authors in August month for this podcast. Yep, a lot of people think about the beach in summer. August is just beginning. Summer reading happens. And you might be casting about asking, you know, what should I read? What would what would improve my life? What would make me better? What what could I crack open to add a little bit of magic or foolishness to my life here in August? And I'm really excited about who I'm introducing you to today on this podcast. And that's Seth Godin, the celebrated blogger and certainly the author, specifically most frequently in books about marketing and kind of unmarketing books, if you will. If you went through college and never thought you'd ever read a marketing book, well, that means you're like me, because I couldn't ever have imagined doing such a thing. And yet, now having read a number of Seth's books, I know how wonderful they are and how much I've learned as a businessman myself from Seth Godin. So, I'm really excited to be bringing Seth Godin to you. But before we get to Seth, I just want to preview the rest of the month, because if you're like me, you like to read, but you're not the fastest reader. So, it might be helpful if we're going to dedicate an entire month on this podcast to authors. It might be helpful if I told you ahead of time our reading list. So, here with who's going to be hanging with Rule Breaker Investing this August. So, August 1st, yep, that would be today, or maybe you're hearing this a few days later, Seth Godin. August 8th, a new author, Priya Parker, her book, The Art of Gathering. If you've ever wondered, how could I make anything from my next business meeting to my next wedding more thoughtful, more intentional, more creative, more daring? Anytime humans gather together, there's an art that, when practiced well, can truly create memorable experiences. And I'm really excited to have Priya Parker share her art of gathering next week. And then on August 15th, how would you like to spend a portion of your career on Wall Street? And then mid course, let's say you've you're in your 40s. What if you decided all of a sudden to throw it all away and start to write novels? And what if your novels became critically praised? You've written a few of them. What if your name were Amor Tolls, the author of A Gentleman in Moscow, a novel I really enjoyed reading, fully allowed, in my case, to my wife, who's tolerant enough while she's cooking our supper to listen to me read most nights of the week. And I loved reading Amor Tolls' novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. He also wrote Rules for Civility. So we've got a talented novelist in the middle of the month who came from, yep, Wall Street. On August 22nd, Speaking of interesting lives that lead to books, how would you like to be Chief Strategy Officer for Microsoft during the golden years 
of the Bill Gates years and then leave that in order to run a successful presidential campaign in the mid-1990s and then go over to England and help Tony Blair get elected in 2005 and then take over the lead for Harris polling and start to learn and watch for trends that are happening in our society that can help us think forward and ask, where are things headed? Well, there's at least one person I know who actually did want to do those things and has, and his name is Mark Penn. And his book, Microtrends, which I believe was written in 2007, about 10 years ago, is credited by many with helping us understand the state of our country today by looking for the trends, the small trends that became bigger over the course of time. Well, Mark has written his newest book, Microtrends Squared. I recently completed it in July. It is outstanding. 50 microtrends to be watching for everything from the world of business, certainly politics as well, but love, the internet, all of these things, thinking forward about the microtrends that will shape our lives is August 22nd, and then finally August 29th, which will be partly shared with your mailbag. I've got Edward Glazer, the author of the book, The Triumph of the City. Glazer's profound thinking as a Harvard economist, looking at kind of the economics of cities and why, darn it, it seems our fellow humans just keep moving to them and how powerful they've become. It's one of Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, 10 favorite books. Outstanding book. Really excited to have Dr. Glazer as well. So, there you have it. A pretty awesome August. Well, without further ado, I want to bring on our first guest, Seth Godin. Seth Godin is an Internet entrepreneur, best-selling author, renowned speaker, and marketing sure expert. In addition to launching one of the great blogs in the world, he's written 18, I think, 18 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, Free Prize Inside, What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. Welcome to my friend Seth Godin. Well, thanks. You and I go back so far. There were dinosaurs on the face of the earth when we first met. Do you remember there was this thing before the World Wide Web called America Online? Do you remember that, Seth? There was this conference that we were at <laughs> that AOL invited all of its uh, content partners to. And the guys from Planet Out uh, undermined the whole thing by renting a suite and inviting you and me and <laughs> 15 other people to come and bring our contracts. And we all shared our best terms with each other. So the ratchet moved in the right direction. <laughs> what a great memory that was. And it's hard not to want to be a little nostalgic. The vast majority of our time together will be present or forward-looking. But Seth, thanks for taking me back to that place before there was an internet. And to think what the internet has become. I remember back in those days, I would go on television and I would be asked questions like, will people really give their credit cards over the internet? Back after this, we're going to have so many things they will. And so, it's just amazing to think just e-commerce itself was highly in doubt, suspect for a few years there. Even email. Would people send email? That was a real question people asked me at VC meetings when I was raising money for your hair died in 1992 or three. Mm. Well, Seth, I told you this is my author's in August theme for the podcast this month, and you are a prolific writer. I'm not just talking about books, of course, because the daily content on your blog is something that you pretty much flawlessly, um, thoughtfully provide every single day. So, I can't not start by asking somebody who's a wonderful and prolific author, what is the process, Seth, that you use, both for sourcing the ideas you write about, but also just in terms of, in terms of writing itself? You know, Stephen King, one of the great novelists of our life, um, goes to writers' conferences all the time, and regularly someone raises their hand and says to him, what kind of pencil do you use? <laughs> and he's very patient, uh, but the thing is, it doesn't matter what kind of pencil you use. That's not the issue. For me, there are several parts. 
about this. Now, I need to make it really clear. I only took one English class in college. Awesome. My high school, my high school English teacher wrote in my yearbook that I was the bane of her existence and I would never <laughs> amount to anything. And when I got in the book business, I got 800 rejection letters in a row over mm. the course of 11 and a half months. So I have no gift. I'm not even ready to call it a talent. I do think that several things are true, though. Number one, perhaps the greatest achievement in any culture on the face of this earth that's filled with humans is when we shift to be able to read and write. Hmm. The reading and writing are asynchronous and permanent, and they enable us to be rational in how we describe things, because we all have the same 26 letters to use, and we can leave behind, even if it's just one day, this message to somebody else that they can read when they want to read it about where we are and what we know. And I think that's magnificent. And so what I brought to writing is this. Write poorly. Write poorly. <laughs> write more. Write poorly. Write more. Write more. Write more. And sooner or later, if you write poorly long enough, you will write well. Mm. Have you ever read Brenda Eulen's book, If You Want to Write? I have not. I'm worried God will jinx me. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has the same message. She taught writing uh, last century. It's a book that's often s- suggested for people on creativity, but she, mm-hmm. she spent a lot of time with adults um, who were in writing classes, maybe remedial or just professional people who hadn't written much. And at the end of the book, no spoilers here, feel free to blow this one off, but at the end of the book, she basically just says, if you want to write, then darn it, just write. <laughs> you read about 220 lovely pages in order to just hear basically what you just pounded home right there, and it's just the act. It's getting those reps in, right? It's a, it's a muscle. If you're using it, it gets stronger. If you don't, it gets weaker. Is that fair? It, it is. And, you know, Isaac Asimov was a friend of mine years ago. He wrote 400 books that got published. I would imagine that. Mm. And the way he did it was every morning he sat down in front of his manual typewriter and he typed until noon. And it didn't matter if it was good, he just typed. And once your brain knows you're doing that, it can't help but want to do it better. And it's similar to, you know, the advice that you give somebody who wants to do investing is, you know, invest in make-believe portfolios for a long time because you'll learn the, the act of doing it. Well, you don't have to have anyone read your blog. You don't have to put your real name on your blog. But blogging every day is the most important thing that I can imagine telling someone to do if they want to be cogent and clear about how they're being in the world. Mm. So, Seth, if if it's okay, if you're going to let us get into your process a little bit more, is that what you're doing? Do you wake up every morning and it's blog time? Uh, I used to blog live, and once I made the commitment to be uh, the Lou Gehrig of blogging, <laughs> I didn't want to leave that up to the, the whims of the Internet and whether I had a cold or not. So... I do blog every single day. For every blog that I post, I write four or five blogs that you don't see, mm. and they all end up in the queue. And every night before I go to bed, I look at tomorrow's blog post and often rewrite it. So it's knowing that a blog post is going to appear tomorrow causes me to think really hard about whether I'm happy with that and also causes me to write another blog post because either you're falling behind on your queue or you're not. Mm. Um, and since you mentioned email earlier and whether it would even be a thing back in the day, 
How much email do you get? How do you handle email? Does email interrupt your creative process? Do you let it or not? Email is my worst vice. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, but I do email, and that's a mistake, and I hope no one who's listening to this sends me one. Um, last time I checked, I'd answered 137,000 emails one at a time, and it doesn't make me more productive. I believe that if someone cares enough to raise their hand and non-anonymously talk to me, I'm willing to listen, but it doesn't scale, and if I had to get rid of a bad habit, that would be one of them. Uh, I once heard email described by a wag as open permission to the world at large to add to your own to-do list. Is that a fairly <laughs> cynical and <laughs> appropriate definition of email? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a little technical, but there's this thing called an API, which is uh, software that talks to other software. And when you have an API, you can make really sophisticated pieces of software work. The problem is email is the original open API. Anyone can plug into your email and you can't stop them. And that's why we got spam, and it's why, if you want to be productive, you're going to have to figure out a way to live with that. Now, I'm pretty confident that many of our Rule Breaker Investing podcast listeners already know Seth Godin, probably have already read at least one of his books, no doubt read his blog or have them forwarded from time to time, ones that have really touched somebody else. And I know you get a lot of shares out there, Seth. I'm wondering specifically about your style, because you're so terse. You're so economical with your words. It sounds like part of the reason is that you've written so much, and you do a 4x to 1 ratio of what you write to what you publish. But I'm wondering, where did that terseness come from? In my own case, I had Mr. Carrick in 11th grade, who basically started striking out three out of every five words I was writing, and it was an incredibly great experience. Did you have that in your life, or how did you get to be the most terse writer that I know? Well, it's expensive, right? That The extra time I put into blog posts is always to make them shorter. And the this is something I will be happy to teach people how to do, and it comes down to this. There's this concept of design thinking, and design thinking is What's it for and who's it for? Everything that we do. You got in the car and went to the supermarket. Why did you do that? You uh, put a sink in your house. What's it for? If you can ask yourself the what's it for question on a regular basis, you'll do better work. So the question is, this blog post, what's it for? This sentence, what's it for? This word, what's it for? And if it doesn't pass the what's it for test, what's it there for? Get rid of it. And often... What's it for is to defend myself, to hide, to not be clear, because if I'm not clear, no one can be angry at me, to show people how smart I am. (laughs) All of those what's it for's aren't interesting to me. But So if you read a scholarly journal, if you read a medical journal, the what's it for is to let other doctors know I'm as smart as they are. I have to use certain kind of words and certain kind of terms, certain kind of sentence structure. But if the what's it for was to explain myself, I probably wouldn't write it like that. Seth, do you feel, because you're such an economical writer, do you feel pressure when you speak that people expect that you are just as perfect with your spoken word? Well, my writing isn't perfect at all. It's <laughs> rife with typos and sloppy and repetitive. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not trying. The thing is, I write like I talk, and that makes it easier to write. I don't have to adopt a new voice. And often... I talk in complete sentences. I think that's something anyone can learn to do, and I try to do it in real life when I'm brainstorming or when I'm with a friend 
or when I'm teaching something. Hmm. Because if you can teach yourself to speak in complete sentences, it's much more likely that your thinking is going to be organized and you're probably going to get better results. Um, one more question about your book, Seth. Of all the Seth Godin books, two questions. Which is, A, the Seth Godin book to start with for somebody who's just hearing about you for the first time? And B, which is the Seth Godin book that most confidently you'll say, and I know you're too humble to even claim this would ever be the case, 100 years from now, people will be reading? Okay. So, my new book comes out in November. It's called This is Marketing. My publisher would like me to tell you that that's the book people will be reading in a hundred years. <laughs> I'll even add this, the subtitle because it's this is marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. It's about work that matters for people who care. It gets at people like us do things like this. It's the book I would have people who haven't read my work and want my professional insight to read first. Mm-hmm. Purple Cow is certainly the book most people read first. I stand by every word in it. Um, and in terms of a hundred years from now, I think historically permission marketing represented a substantial shift in our economy. I didn't cause it, but I was there at the right time. And you can look at the before and after the stock market of the economy of our culture and permission marketing is that moment there for sure. And then I would say that linchpin is, the book that I am the most proud of as a testament to what human beings are capable of. Support for Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Did you know there's a simpler approach to investing driven by TD Ameritrade's innovative technology? With essential portfolios, just choose your goal and how much risk you're willing to take, then get a recommended portfolio based on your unique needs. That's right. Learn more about essential portfolios by visiting tdameritrade.com slash EP. That's right, tdameritrade.com slash EP. And you post to job boards and hope you'll find the right person for your job. But think about it. How often do you check job boards? For most people, it's a pretty occasional thing, but there's a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities, and that would be LinkedIn. Now, a lot of us already know LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network. Well, it's also a better way to find great talent. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses, including certainly The Motley Fool, who've posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So, yeah. Hurry to linkedin.com slash fool for $50 off your first job post. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's move into marketing now. Can't not go there. Got Seth Godin on the podcast. Gotta talk marketing. Seth, I'm going to spot you up with a few what I'll call Godinisms, and I just would love you to riff a little. I'm assuming you sure. pretty much stand by most of these, but I always just love hearing how you think about it, maybe updated for 2018 in some cases. Let's kick it off with, quote, Conversations among the members of your marketplace happen whether you like it or not. Good marketing encourages the right sort of conversations. So this horizontal and vertical movement of ideas, 
Vertical movement is the kind we think actually happens, where a politician or a corporation or a TV host forces us mm. to take action. That almost never actually occurs. Horizontal is, oh, you're not accountable, she's not accountable, I'll stop being accountable. Right? <laughs> horizontal is the people like us do things like this. So we're constantly victims of and creators of peer pressure. That's how we built our culture. That's all it is. So given that all the people you seek to serve are going to talk about something, the question is, are you building something they're going to choose to talk about? Because you can't force them to. And I think the same thing is true when, when you think about, will some stock get more attention than another one? Well, it tends to happen because a piece of information gets spread from person to person, which causes action to occur. So what that means is we can't force people to do something, but we can set the stage that they choose to do it. Mm, such a great insight. Next one. A product for everyone rarely reaches much of anyone. Yeah, average stuff for average people. Well, you know, it worked for Heinz Ketchup, but that was 80 years ago. If you look at almost every single success of the last decade, it started for the weird. It didn't start in the middle. <laughs> Airbnb and Facebook and little tiny companies that have a line out the door in your little town, all of them are on the edges. They don't optimize for the middle. They optimize for the edge. And then the edge tells the rest. But you, you will, if you optimize for mediocre, you're going to end up with mediocre, and that's not going to help you very much. Mm. Anytime I hear Seth use the word edge, I think back to Free Prize Inside, one of the books that I've really appreciated from you, Seth. And that's where I first heard you basically articulate that whatever your product is, whatever your company's about, find your edge and then make sure you take your edge to the edge, which has always been pretty good advice for us here at The Motley Fool. And I mean, I'm taking full credit for you, and then you're taking full credit for the stock market, where everyone's happy. <laughs> Another one. One disappointed customer is worth 10 delighted ones. Okay, so this one has nuance to it, so let me try to break it apart. Today, it's easier than ever for someone who's pissed off at you to talk about it. And if they get sufficiently upset, they'll talk about it more and more because it becomes pleasurable for them to take you down. Whereas in our economy where FedEx isn't fast enough, where our economy where perfect isn't good enough, satisfied customers mostly just sit there and do nothing. They're not busy bragging about you. They might be satisfied, but they're not super delighted. Mm. So what we've got to figure out how to do is get rid of customers who we can't keep our promise to to those people, it's not for you. Not keep making bigger and bigger promises because we're trying to please everyone. Mm. And then what we've got to do with the people who we can please is stop trying to please them and start working to delight them, to overwhelm them with delight. So they can't even go to bed tonight without telling eight people about the extra effort we put into that because that is worth six billboards in Times Square. Well, you just put me in mind of a, a blog you wrote last week. This one was forwarded to me by my friend Lauren Horst, because Lauren loved it. And I'm going to read it, because Seth's blogs are brief. And so, I hope this is okay. A dramatic reading of two ways to solve a problem and provide a service. And here's how it goes. This was written on July 23rd. It's already got over 3,500 likes, um, just on Seth's site, to say nothing of social media. These things get passed around a lot. I love this one. Here, here, here's how it goes. Two ways to solve a problem and provide a service. With drama. 
Make sure the customer knows just how hard you're working, what extent you're going to in order to serve. Make a big deal out of the special order, the additional cost, the sweat, and the tears. That would be one. Two, without drama. Make it look effortless. Either can work, Seth wrote. Depends on the customer and the situation, but it's a choice. We can make it with intention. In a lot of ways, it feels like what you just said to us, Seth, so I was just connecting that in. But this idea that um, those customers that we do find, if we've focused our product or service and we've excluded others and said it's not for you, we really need to hold on to them and make them feel special. We do. And people feel special for different reasons. It's the narrative they tell themselves. So if you think about uh, James Brown in concert at the Apollo Theater, He's, you know, his aides have to come out and catch him because he's working so hard. And you compare that to, I don't know, Brad Meldow playing the piano, and it's just effortless. <laughs> well, they both made music. The question is, what kind did you want to hear? And how did you want it delivered? And so we see this, if we're going to distinguish between a you know, four-star restaurant where uh, it just seems magic versus the pizza place where the guy is looking like he's going to drop dead of a heart attack. He's working so hard for you. And... Different people want different things. We just should be really clear that we're putting on a show all the time. We're putting on a show. And the question is, is that the show they came to see? Mm. Seth, looking back now over your career, and I, I expect that it'll continue indefinitely, so I'm looking forward to future Godin for the next 30 years. But now, just looking back for the last 30 years, um, what's been the biggest shift in how you think about marketing? Um, I came up in the old days. And I thought marketing was something we did to people. And now it is really clear to me we do it for people. Another friend of mine here at The Motley Fool, Troy Springer, dropped a note in. He said, you know, building tribes on the internet sounded like a great idea when Seth first wrote his book, Tribes, in 2008. Recently, though, all that tribe building may have backfired a little, with the internet and companies like Facebook being called out for leaving social and entering the news business, sometimes the fake news business. Seth, what are your thoughts about the building of tribes on the internet today? Is, is social media a net positive or a net negative for society? Uh, I'm easily calling it a net negative. You know, in, in my book, I was really clear that tribes aren't always a good thing. And I was really clear that it's probably not your tribe. The tribe already exists. The question is, will you choose to lead them? Mm. And the thing is, it doesn't matter if you're a public company or not. If you show up to make change happen, which is what marketers do, you're responsible for the change. And so the question is, you got all these people who want to connect. you got all these people who want to have various kinds of interactions and sometimes drama. What will you, as the referee, as the organizer, as the media company, do and what will you be responsible for? And so when I look at this, I say, did you make things better? Did you show up in a way that people are glad they had that interaction? Now, my biggest problem with social media, when we say it, we mean, you know, corporatized, weaponized social media, mm. is they made it addictive because the humans involved are not the customer. If you are using Facebook or Twitter, you're not the customer. You're the product. And you need to be really aware that it is you and your activity that's being sold. They're not there for you. And winning at social media is not the same as winning at life. And we've unfortunately lost many years and many people to that misunderstanding. Mm. 
Let's shift now a little bit from marketing to business and just some thoughts. And I think that was a nice transition right there, helping us along. Seth, your blog, I'm thinking about your blog, maybe the first popular blog that I learned about. Um, when did you officially start Seth's blog, and what are your reflections on it? Uh, my recollection is that it was a email newsletter in 1990 or 91. Um, so I had a little bit of a head start by 27 years. It didn't reach its official <laughs> current form until maybe 15 years ago. Um, and for me, what it represents is anyone can be a columnist now. They give Pulitzer Prizes to newspaper columnists, but anyone can be one. Anyone who has something to say or to share can put that into the world. And if you're not doing it, I think you're being selfish. Because there are people who want to hear from you. There are people who want to be connected by you. And if you're not showing up to do that, I feel like you're taking things from people. Mm. Does blogging pay? Pay cash money? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, using a Stairmaster pays because you're not going to have a heart attack and that's really expensive. <laughs> and I think that having a blog will get you a better job in the long run. It will make help you make better decisions. It will do countless things for you. But if you're trying to run a blog on Tuesday so you make money on Wednesday – you're going to be a lousy blogger and not a very good citizen either. Mm. Seth, I want to go um, to um, just a page. I'm thinking of, we're going to stick with business here, stick, thinking of page 38 from Purple Cow, which you mentioned. Besides your book coming out this November, this is marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. But you mentioned Purple Cow, in addition, being a great one to start with, and I agree. And on page 38, at least of my edition, you write a short chapter. I think it's about one page, and it's called Cheating. And I've always just loved this this concept. So cheating for me as an investor, I'm looking for businesses, in your words, that cheat. Basically, finding businesses that have some unfair competitive advantage. I'll give two quick examples: um, Old Dominion Freight Lines, which is a less than truckload trucking company and a very fine one for more than a century. Basically, doesn't have any unionized workforce in an industry that's dominated by unionized workforces. They're cheating in your parlance. Or Netflix being able to bid on TV show content based on its voluminous customer data that its customers simply lack. Netflix is cheating, and so on. So, first off, I love the concept, and it's always helped me pick stocks. But second, do you have some newer examples today that you think of when you're thinking about the good form of cheating? What I mean by cheating is what business is supposed to do, which is to create an asset that when they use it, gives them leverage over everyone else, because otherwise everyone's in the commodity business. So most of the people who pump oil out of the ground are pumping oil out of the ground the same as everybody else. It's a commodity. You don't care when you fill your car up with gas what kind of gas you're putting in. Mm -hmm. The goal here is to find an institution that has that asset and can put it to work. So if I think about the ratchet that Amazon has been turning for the last 10 years, now they have two or three ratchets all working in the same direction. They have a brand that people trust. They have the lowest cost of doing certain kinds of operations. They have the most efficient web services. When you add those things up, that's an unfair advantage. But it's also a kind of cheating if you have permission to talk to people. If I can send an email to a million people and say, my new book is ready, I'm cheating. Because I can put my new book in front of 50 times as many people as an author who 
didn't wait, who waited to the last minute before they started to build an audience. And so what my books are about is which assets will we choose to build? Not just because we're good humans and good citizens, but because once we build one of those assets, then we have the privilege of doing ever better work because mm. we can use that asset to advance our head start. That's tremendous. All right, well, let's stay with some of the cheaters of our time. In this case, some of my favorite stocks, actually. And not just my favorite stocks, forget about me. These are some of the world's best-known and most admired companies in some cases. Although, Seth, I'm always curious, you know, who do you admire and what for? So, I wanted to just ask you, if you see any big challenges when it comes, let's go with when it comes to marketing for these companies. And I've got five in mind. Feel free to give me 15-second stingers for each or whatever you'd like to say. But let's kick it off with Facebook. Well, I think that day trading Facebook is a great way to end up in an insane asylum. <laughs> the the long-term view is, do humans want to be digitally connected with a large number of other humans who might be talking about them behind their back? The answer is yes. And so then the question is, <laughs> is there a significant disruptor that's going to make it so a different company other than Facebook's going to do that? I don't know. I don't see one coming. Mm. Next, number two. Any advice or thoughts about Apple? Apple used to be a early adopter company for people who had good taste about digital electronics and wanted to use a tool to make things better. And they have become the largest and most profitable luxury goods company in history. Mm. And they've left behind the people who made the thing actually work. The open question for me is, can they keep riding that luxury uh, ratchet when other people are working so hard to bring utility for less to the masses. I'm dubious. Amazon. Yeah, I mean, Jeff's one of the smartest people I've ever met, and his relentless, it was, it was, this, this site was going to be called relentless.com, his relentless <laughs> approach to turning those three or four ratchets he's got is never ending, and they still only sell one out of X number of dollars worth of stuff. So, again, I don't see something interrupting that other than an economic cataclysm in the short run. If you were the head of marketing for the next company, I'm curious what you'd be doing. Tesla? Well, I think that once you move away from the hobbyists and the early adopters, the rest of the market demands a level of uh, maturity and consistency that is difficult for the current CEO to deliver on a daily basis. So, He's a brilliant inventor and a rock on tour and a maker of change. But if you want everyone to drive a Tesla, and that would be fine with me, they're going to have to figure out how to make it palatable to people for whom $55,000 is a very significant investment. Mm -hmm. Well put. And last, let's go with Netflix. Yeah, you know, Netflix clear the table, right? They figured out how to beat Hollywood at its own game. No one has done that successfully in a hundred years and they did it. And I don't know what happens after that, but you got to give them a bow. They've reinvented the company three times. Most companies can't even do it once, <laughs> three times. And the question is, do you spend $5 billion a year on content? When do you stop? And we know people want to watch it. The question is, the you know, the microeconomics of the interactions that you're having with your members. Mm. 
Seth, earlier in the interview, you said, and I love this, uh, I'm definitely going to be remembering this question that you asked rhetorically earlier, of you or me or anyone, let's go with corporations, did you make things better? Of those five companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, I won't ask you to rank them by who made things better. You could if you wanted to. But of those five, which do you think most has made things better? Well, the problem with most is now you're multiplying two factors, <laughs> the number of people and the amount of change. I think that, uh, well, I know that the way the world is most likely to end is it gets too warm and a billion people in the next you know, 30 years are going to lose their homes. So shifting to solar and to electricity as an idea hmm. is mammothly important, I think, to all of us. So have they sold enough cars to do that? Not yet. But the more people copy them, and the more likely it is we go in that direction, then I think we're making good progress. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, the, the idea of, of making things better. What I'm trying to do as a teacher, is go beyond saying, Seth said this too. How do I create environments where people who want to level up can level up? And the Alt-MBA, the workshop that I run, lasts a month. People in 45 countries have taken it. What we do is we get cohorts of 125 people together, and they work for two or three hours a day for a month to transform themselves the same way Netflix transformed itself. How do we change the way we look at the world? How do we open ourselves up to giving and getting feedback? So I just wanted to point out, because we're talking in August, we're only running one more session this year. Uh-huh. And so if people are into it, I hope they'll check out altmba.com because we built it for people like the people who are listening today. Well, that's awesome. And this is a great target audience for you. And thank you very much for sharing that out and, and, and for that work that you've been doing. Um, it's just spectacular. And it reminds me that you're operating across, forgive the military metaphor, so many fronts. And it's inspiring. I know to me, and I'm sure to many listening. My closing two questions for my authors in August. Um, the first one is just kind of who's awesome? You know, who's out there that you admire today? Somebody that might, might be very well known, somebody who might not be well known at all, but who's awesome? Well, you know, I've been profiling a bunch of people in this new book, and they're all over the spectrum um, from Sarah Jones, who's an actress who has radical empathy in the way she performs on stage, to Kitar Bear a guy in Boston who wears a bear suit and plays the guitar on the street corner, <laughs> Danny Meyer, who runs restaurants where he's trying to persuade privileged people not to tip anymore. Mm-hmm. There's this huge array of people who aren't on Oprah, who aren't on the front page of the paper, who are doing work that matters for people who care. And I could talk about them all day because that's what keeps each of us going, is that there's somebody who said, not going to settle for the status quo, how do I make something better? That fits in really well on the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, because we're always looking for the rule breakers, those who come along, look at the status quo, and say, I can do better, watch me. And especially when they turn that vision into a product or service, and then miraculously, in some cases, maybe 10 years later, go public, and actually then add value and create multi-baggers for us as investors over time, I'll always love the Rule Breakers. And you certainly are a favorite Rule Breaker of mine within your um, field. Thank you, Seth Godin. Let me ask, close by asking, um, why not? What are you reading? What are you reading? I'm curious. What should I be reading? You know, I don't know what you should be reading. I try to push myself not just to read the hundreds of books that show up on my desk, but explore some fringes. Here's a book by Donald Hall 
which has the best book title of any book I've touched this year. It's called String Too Short to Be Saved. And it's a series of reflections on growing up in New England by a poet. And the reflection of the title is they were cleaning out a recluse's house, probably a hoarder, somebody who had lived there for many, many years. And in one of the rooms, there was a box, and the box was labeled String Too Short to Be Saved. <laughs> Spectacular. Donald Hall, the acclaimed American poet, no longer living, I don't think, but somebody, I think it's wonderful to imagine, Seth, you sitting there reading poetry and helping us toward that here in August. Seth, thank you so much for joining with me. It's always a pleasure the brief time that we get to spend with each other, I think once every four or five years. But I, I sure hope that you'll be around maybe a year from now and I can call you back up and we can talk again on this podcast. This Deal. was spectacular. Come in. Thank you, it's sir. A pleasure. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, what a special treat that was. Thank you, Seth Godin. Coming up next week, as I mentioned, Priya Parker, her book, The Art of Gathering. Now, I realize I'm only giving you about seven days to read it, and it took me longer than seven days to read it, but this is not one of those 400-page books. Nope, it's a good, it's about 220 pages. It's a page-turner. Spectacular. Even just the first couple of chapters will have you thinking differently about all those gatherings that you're having on a daily, weekly, monthly basis in your life, and Priya Parker will help change your mind and mine starting next week. Well, what better way to close than simply to ask rhetorically one more time, along with my friend Seth Godin, how will you make things better? Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.